We'll open up your Bibles once again to Luke chapter 16. We're looking at the entire chapter. We entitled the outline, Two Parables on Stewardship. And um, as Isaac had mentioned last time, we talked about verses 1 through 13. And we never really got to any of the points in the outline, but we talked a great deal about what the Lord is, is, is getting at with this subject matter. And in those first verses, the point that he, uh, one of the points he deliberates on is the wasting of wealth. And there's three dangers to avoid when, it, when coming to wealth. The wasting of wealth, the coveting of wealth, and worshiping wealth. And these aren't necessarily three things that are, just, that are distinct from one another. Sometimes all three can exist. But these are dangerous for us to be aware of. And the first one, as I mentioned, is wasting wealth. Jesus did not commend the steward for cheating his master, but for making good use of the opportunity before him. The, it, it's really hard for us at times to separate loss and reward. What's covered in these first few verses is, uh, well, let's read it. Let's read that text again, and then we'll jump right into this. Verses 1 through 13 of Luke 16. And Jesus said also unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. And he called him and said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. Then the steward said, Within himself, what shall I do? <coughs> For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg, I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and said unto the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? And he said, An hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and sit down quickly, and write fifty. Then said he to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, An hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, and write fourscore. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, which is what we're looking at here at the start of the lesson, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I say unto you, Make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fall, they may receive you into everlasting habitations." He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is, uh, if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve both God and mammon. So, the, the crutch of all this, instead of trying to separate what one should be faithful to, we have to understand, as we discussed in the introduction last Sunday, we are called to be faithful to God in all things. So even in this situation where the steward has been addressed for possibly wasting his goods, as we see there in, in Luke 16, verse 1, he is called to be faithful with the circumstance that he has. So what, if you're here and there's a great sin that you have yet to repent of, you're called to be faithful even in the season in which you are living unfaithfully. I know that that sounds confusing, but what are you faithfully commanded to do by faith? You're called by faith to repent unto God. So even in that situation, 
make it worse if you desire to do so, you'll still be required to be faithful unto your master. This steward is never given another master in this parable. He's never relinquished completely and, and sold off to be a servant to something else. He's still required to be faithful. And that's what the praise or the commendation we read about there in verse 8 is. The people of this world, as the text says, are much better at seeing opportunities and profiting from them than are the children of God. We see this as well when Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 5, See then ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 17. Same thing. We're called to be faithful to God in all things. Be not unwise but understand what the will of the Lord is. This is kind of what we talked about in Caldwell on Thursday. The, the, the need for us to be confident in the will of God is directly related to our confidence in what the Word of God says. And that's not an understanding or a knowledge that can be poured out from one person to another. It's something that requires of us to diligently seek it to be in the Word of God and study the Word of God. It's one thing to be content that I don't like to have to do this thing and therefore God must not require me to do this thing. But do we truly know that the Word of God does not require of us to do this thing? I hesitate to give examples because no doubt we all have some experience with one thing or another. But if God's Word reveals that we should be doing that one thing, then we're called to be faithful in it. We're called to repent and walk in the light. During this brief life, we have the opportunity to use wealth to mend rather than to break. And that's what we see the steward doing here. The key is faithfulness. Look at verses 10 through 12 again. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have been uh, if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? The unrighteous mammon or money is the least, but the eternal riches are the most. Amen. The eternal riches are that which we should long for, which we are running the race to achieve. If you use God's wealth, there's too many pages in these lessons today. If you use God's wealth as he wills, and he will give us true riches, which are our own. Jesus did not see a great gulf fixed between the material and the spiritual. He saw the purpose of God's will in both. And that's why here he gives warning of wealth, not an exposition that we are to completely avoid wealth, to abstain from wealth. Those words existed, but that's not what he taught here. He warned of the dangers of wealth. Even the one that came to him that had much there was still hope because Jesus told him, go and sell what thou have. There was still teaching for this man. For one of the most spiritual things we can do is use material things to glorify God and the winning of the lost. If we look closely at what the steward was doing in this first part of Luke 16, he was making a connection between his master and those debtors. He was illustrating forgiveness. He was showing that uh, what that quote that I had mentioned the other night, 
of not letting the things we can't do get in the way of the things that we can do. These that he went to could not pay their entire debt, but him, the steward, saw fit to require part of the debt, the part that they could afford. And that was better than nothing for his master in which he was collecting for. The second thing to concern ourselves with, we see in verses 13 through 18, coveting wealth. Starting in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And the Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided Jesus. And he said unto them, ye are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass than one till of the law to fail. Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth another committeth adultery, and whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband committeth adultery. I want to look back over this text with uh, a little more exposition. Strong's gives us some good definition of these words. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. This word love means to be well pleased or to be contented at with a thing. So imagine being content with something other than what God's will is for the believer. Or else he will hold, and this word here, according to Strong's definition of agapeo, is to keep oneself directly opposite to anyone, hold to him firmly, cleave to, paying heed to him. And, and in these words we see a type of worship, do we not? A holding to or a worshiping to the one and a despising of the other. Remember, one is mammon, but the other is God, who is requiring worship in both spirit and truth. And we heard about the importance of truth in our scripture reading this morning. Ye cannot serve. This word is translated elsewhere as be in bondage to. Ye cannot be in bondage to God and mammon. The Pharisees also who were covetous heard all these things and they derided. And to deride means to deride by turning up the nose or to sneer at or to scoff at Jesus. Those who worship the one, this is their natural response to the other. If you skip down a little bit, it talks about, and, and, and it sounds a little confusing the way that it's phrased. This is why I wanted to, to spend a little time on it. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John, since that time the kingdom of God is preached which we know because as soon as uh, Jesus heard that John was imprisoned, his message, at least how it's described, is exactly how John the Baptist's messages were described. Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. And then it says, Since that time the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. This phrase literally means every man is seized by it. This is the power of the gospel. Every man is seized by it. And every man will answer to it. If we don't answer to it in this life, having been answered for it by Jesus, then we will answer for it at the end of life. Because every man is seized by the truth of the gospel. The Lord here is compelled once again to address the jeering crowd of Pharisees who are always around at this point in his ministry. 
The Pharisees were outwardly, outwardly pious, but inwardly they were filled with covetousness. Believing as they did that wealth was a sign of God's blessing, they laughed at Jesus and what he taught. They literally turned up their nose and scoffed at what he was teaching here. I wonder just how outward it was. Was it a, a snicker that if it was a silent moment in the Lord speaking that he would have heard a snicker? Or was it an open, offensive laugh in the face of our Lord? Matthew 23, verse 14 says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. It is to be noted that as scribes and Pharisees, woes had already been pronounced upon them by the Lord Jesus. Therefore, to achieve everlasting life, if they would but heed his words, they'd know they would have to come by different methods. They'd already received verbal woes from the Lord Jesus in their lifetime. So when we think about the gospel being hard for others to hear, as we heard it, the world is rejecting it and all that. I mean, that's been going on for a while, but certainly it's becoming more and more outward. Uh, and we can read of places in the world where there's already uh, heavy persecution being doled out for those who would call themselves Christian. But when we think about the offense it might give when we tell somebody about the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to understand it has always been offensive to natural man. The gospel has never at any point since its inception not been offensive to fallen man. We can see that in the beginning of Genesis 4. Remember Cain? His heart was hardened at the fact that Abel would be accepted and received of God, but not his offering. He wasn't, uh, his offering wasn't good enough if you uh, go through and listen to those messages. In Titus chapter 1, Paul writes in verses 10 and 11, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. For their own profitability, for their own puffed-upness, Lies are being taught as truths, Paul says to Titus. Putting it simply, their ways were self-serving and just plain selfish. This is why the Pharisees jeered or scoffed at Jesus, because what he was teaching was a smack in the face to what they had been teaching the same crowd. They were not unlike the success preachers today who equate happiness and holiness with prosperity. God must be pleased your bank account is full. God must be pleased you arrived in a Lamborghini. Certainly you must be well favored in his sight. I don't think Joseph arrived anywhere in golden horses or Lamborghinis. I don't read of a lot of the servants of God faring very well in this life. I don't hope to. My reward, my treasure is on the other side. Amen. This is the work floor, the shop floor, That's right. where things get done. But on the other side, I don't even know that our minds could behold the beauty, the majesty of basking in the light of God's glory. I love, uh, there's probably a lot of gospel songs that phrase it this way, but there's one that uh, the Mylan Hayes group sings quite often. They talk about the light of the sun as a legend. 
as a legend. I think it's Revelation 21 where, where the gardens described and the tree of the life of, of life is there and, and all are gathered in the light of the Lord. And that's the point in time when the sun is just a legend. We just remember what the sun was like, but it does not compare to those in that chapter who are truly experiencing the real light. It's kind of like lunar heat compared to solar heat. And you have to ask Brother Thorne about that because I'd never heard of that until last Tuesday night. But Isaac and I have talked about it a lot since. They were trying to serve two masters, the Lord and their money. When we get to Revelation 21, are we going to try and bask in two lights? The sun and Jesus? Of course not. The S-U-N. I don't want to confuse anybody. The S-U-N or the S-O-N. We're only going to bask in one. We're going to talk about maybe the legend of the other. Do you all remember beaches? I hate beaches, but do you all remember beaches and the actual solar heat that we had back then? It doesn't even compare to this. And we would have no desire to go back to this. Either we serve self or we serve God. There can be no compromise. And he doesn't give time off in which it's okay to serve yourself now. I'll have you later. Every time the first is in the way of the second, we rob God. Material success and the power and prestige it brings are greatly admired by men, but God sees it as an abomination. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. But righteousness delivereth from death. The Lord will not suffer the soul of the righteous to famish, but he casteth away the substance of the wicked. It is not a sin to be wealthy. For godly men like David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're wealthy. We see that in our study on Wednesday night. They had money to take to Egypt because money wasn't going to do them any good in Canaan, there was nothing to buy. But they took money, they took of their wealth to Egypt to buy grain. It is a sin to have the world's attitude toward wealth and fail to use wealth to glorify God. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul tells Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up and store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. What a charge. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. What a charge to be told that they were to be rich in good works. Anybody in here rich in good works? That's a challenge. And you compare what rich in mammon, rich in money, rich in self-esteem looks like to how rich we are to be in good works, we ought to be busy because that's a pretty high plateau that Paul said to uh, he's not just challenging Timothy with this. Timothy's a young preacher. Timothy is a man of God that at this point is being charged to feed Ephesus. And that church in Ephesus is not just some random church. When we read about Paul's experience with the Ephesians, he had a great love for them. When he left under, uh, under the impression that the Lord had in his will for him to depart, they went about half a journey with him. 
and with tears. He confirmed with them that he had taught them with tears in his eyes. Every jot and every tittle of the word of God. He had instructed them with all that he was. Assuredly, he challenged them to be rich in good works. And now he's challenging their new pastor, their new under shepherd to do the same. The trouble with the Pharisees is that they were unwilling to pay the price to follow the Lord. Now, don't take this out of context. It's it's not talking about, well, they didn't tithe. That's not the sacrifice. Remember, he would have nothing to do with any more blood concerning lamb and cow and goat and anything else. These sacrifices, these sacramental atonements were of no use to him. What is the payment to follow the Lord Jesus? A repentant heart. Remember, we read through, I think it was Ezekiel, might have been Isaiah. He talked about how his requirement, his desire for his disciples, and this is in the Old Testament, was to have a pricked heart that was faithful to follow. And Jesus didn't stray from that. In the last three chapters of Luke, he says the exact same thing Mortify the body, crucify your life, bear your cross, and follow me. And he who does not do these things is not fit to be my disciple. In their desire to obey the letter of the law, they were ignoring the inner meaning of the law itself as taught by Jesus. The third thing we see here, verses 19 through 31, is the worshiping of wealth. Luke 16, verse 19, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. I know many of us have heard this, so I'd encourage you to hang on some details maybe you haven't thought about before. Some of these finer things, what color was he clothed in? The fact that it was fine linen. The fact that he not only fared sumptuously, but he fared sumptuously every day. Which meant he could have burned up all of his wealth the day before because he fared sumptuously every day. This isn't just a certain rich man. This is a very exceedingly rich man who did very well every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked the sores. Again, not your first time hearing this text. Let's hang on some details here. He was laid at that gate. He was probably brought there. He probably didn't carry himself. He had sores, and he begged for crumbs from the table of a man who fared sumptuously every day. Lazarus had the opposite experience than this certain rich man. Every day he was very poor. Based on the description, every day he was very, very sore. That even the dogs would lick his sores. And he wasn't waiting for a loaf of bread to fall off the table, but crumbs. Just crumbs. And it came to pass that he is referred to here as a beggar. The beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. This man who was carried to this gate was carried by the angels to the security of God. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. I have to stop there because there's some things to address. This undoes the lie of purgatory. Because that's not where he opened up his eyes. If there was a purgatory in which sinful man that had not yet been forgiven could go and plead his case or wait for candles 
Would not the rich man who fared sumptuously every day have an opportunity for that place? I know that this chronologically is before the Catholic Church, but does the Catholic Church have the ability to introduce purgatory into the cosmos of eternity? No! There's no purgatory. If you're lost here today and you perish tonight, you will open up your eyes if you're not saved in the same place this rich man did. If you're listening and you're just saying, I'm almost persuaded. I'm almost persuaded that this could be true. You have a lot of praying and reading to do before the end of this night. Because if you're not born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Thrice in John 3, Jesus says that. And Jesus says this. We should not be concerned with what man, pope or no pope, has to say about it. This is scripture. And thus far in the description here, the poor man was cared for and carried and secure. And he's not in the same place as the rich man. This rich man fared sumptuously every single day. Who knows what that would translate to in 2023 money, but he did just fine every day. He was more than content. He had money enough to spend it up in one day and earn it back the next day. He's doing great. But when he died, he was buried. What do we see there? That's kind of a type of religion. He was buried. Under the tradition of man, he was put in the ground. Everything was done right. He lived great, had a lot of money, was put in the ground, but opened up his eyes in hell and torment immediately. Immediately, his body, his soul rather, was made perfect for the experience of suffering torment for the remainder of all eternity. And he doesn't speak softly in the next verse. He cried. He cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. The text tells us he opens up his eyes and he's tormented. He confesses with his own tongue, I am tormented. I imagine this rich man, I don't know how he came to know Lazarus's name, but I would imagine he didn't bother to use it much in life. And that's just my imagination. We're not told that in scripture, but he knows Lazarus's name here. And he knows who Abraham is. But Abraham said, son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. I want to stop again. Imagine a value system here. The rich man enjoyed what he fared sumptuously with every single day, but now he longs. He is not close to content at all. The poor man begged every single day, and now he fared sumptuously in the bosom of Father Abraham, as is told to us in this parable. Remember what we lost in the garden? Contentment. Because Adam and Eve were content before she had decided for herself, that is desirable to eat. They were content before it was revealed that Adam's teaching and leadership of his home and keeping the garden, the garden temple, if you would, failed. They were content until it was revealed the truth of evil and good. And beside all this, between us and you, 
Abraham says, there is a great gulf fixed so that they would uh, they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. A fixed distance between the rich man and the beggar. A fixed distance. This is that ugliness that the world hates, that God is not just a God of love, that he had a different experience for Esau than he did Jacob. He loved one. He hated the other. That is the great gulf. That is the great distance. It's, that distance is mounted by God's love or it is not mounted at all. Picture Jesus on the cross, the two male factors on either side. He is the great gulf. Arms spread, if you want to visualize it that way, he is the great gulf between this male factor and this male factor.